Hi, how are you? Good. Let this little announcement start. Lock start Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight it is January 13th of 2013. January 31st, sorry, of 2013, and tonight our guest is Mara B. Collins, who is a harm reduction therapist who works in Georgia. She's been, I believe, associated with the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition in the past, and we're going to bring her on in a minute. First, we're going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduce drinking, to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest Mara is right here now. How are you doing this evening, Mara? Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you're an existential therapist. What is existential therapy? Yes, well... Um some people call me a sentimental existentialist because I'm not that kind of nihilist, depressing <laughs> existentialist. <laughs> I um, I think about um, how many people in the world deal with anxiety, and I think of existentialism as a way to understand and process anxiety, and uh, especially existential therapy. You know, um, the modality that I use really focuses on these four paradoxes, um, and they include. Uh, one, meaning and meaninglessness, um, also isolation and connection, death and striving for life, and choice and responsibility. And usually people who come and, and who I work with are dealing with life, you know, on one of those planes, really usually more than one, and the way they intersect together. Um, I think, too, uh, the piece about, you know, just like our our existential dilemma is so much, I think, about uh, if we're focusing on the future or dwelling in the past or living in the present. And also so many times people struggle based on, on one of those kind of things, like either in the future life will be bliss when I complete my masterpiece or back in the good old days everything was wonderful. And I think either way of thinking can keep a person from, from living in the present. And, and I think a lot of stuff uh, when people use drugs or alcohol, it, it often is somehow related to to trouble uh, in that regard. And then I guess the other piece of existentialism that I really like is through um, a philosopher named Martin Buber who said that in the existential relationship, there's an I-thou relationship. So it's something about seeing the God in yourself and the God in the other person or, you know, a divine presence um, in order to make the therapeutic uh, encounter work. Okay. Uh, well, how do you use existential therapy in your work? Well, um, I try to first assess where the person is at with the paradoxes. That's kind of um, well. Let me let me um, actually step back for a second. I try to attune myself with my client. So sometimes the people I work with are dealing with intense addiction issues and um, have a dual diagnosis with. Um, you know, uh, mental health issues, right, or sometimes severe and persistent mental health. So I try to quiet the chaos that sometimes my client will bring to just get to be in relationship with one another for a moment. And that's not partial to existential therapy. I think that needs to happen for any good therapy to occur, but it's a good starting point. And then 
um, usually people are talking either about the way their choices have created a difficult time or the way their loneliness has created a difficult time. You know, that would be the isolation connection paradox or their choices, choice and responsibility, or the way, you know, grief has affected people's lives, which is a life and death um, paradox, or the way that they're trying to find meaning in the world where they can't find meaning, you know, or trying to assert some sort of sense of, you know, this is the this is what this means. I'm trying to either find or make meaning of my situation, and that's working or it's not working. So that's, I think, it covers a lot of bases, really, um, across all kinds of lines. What is your connection to harm reduction? How did you get into this? Well, um, you know, I, I want to say first how much I love your um, your methodology. And when I saw you at the conference um, back in Portland, how you said, um, you know, people need people say you have to quit for yourself, but if you have a relationship that would be improved by you quitting or changing your use, um, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I would say um, it had a retroactive, wonderful effect, and it, it'll take me back to kind of the way that harm reduction, I would say, kind of saved my life. And I didn't even know what it was at the time that I did it. Um, I had a pretty significant trauma with uh, five people in my family dying in the same year, and four of them uh, was in the same two-month period. And so, of course, um, my family kind of fell apart, and I was getting pretty heavily into using at that time. And... um, It took a long time to get out of it, and I slowly um, moved away from the most harmful drugs to then, you know, being able to deal with my underlying traumas and just kind of slowly back away, um, you know, beginning with reducing the harm that the drugs were causing in my life by changing my situation or changing the people that I got them from, things like that. I didn't know anything about harm reduction at that time, but when I learned about it, which I think was in um, 07, um, at a something to the Drug Policy Alliance, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is what I've been believing all along, you know. And um, so I went to that, and I just kind of looked at articles and looked at things online. In fact, I'd looked at the HAMS website many times before I even knew you. And um, and then I moved to Atlanta and became began, began to volunteer at the Harm Reduction Coalition, and um, I got to do a group with, you know, somewhere between five and 20 men. No, it was co-ed, but it's mostly men who go um, every week and having very real conversations about, you know, the reasons people use and um, having a great relationship, you know, or like a, a mentoring relationship really with Mona Bennett who, you know, was saying that if you put a spark plug cover over your pipe when you're going to smoke some sort of, you know, um, cocaine, then that's harm reduction because your lips might not get cut. And then if you engage in a high-risk activity, you may not uh, contract something. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is big. This is a very expansive um, modality. And on the wall at harm reduction are the stages of change. And I started working with those stages of change, and we just kind of review them every week, you know, go over contemplation or pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation um, preparation, action, 
maintenance, relapse. Oh, relapse is part of recovery. Okay, that's a whole new thing. That's a whole new thing that you learn that's different than Mm -hmm. um, AA or anything like that. And people talking about their progress and their process of going through these things. And then I sort of um, realized how, how this process works and just by also seeing the way that people's lives get saved, you know, and how they have at those conferences um, dead addicts don't recover. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that's kind of my, I don't know, my experience with harm reduction. Well, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, that you got into it by you starting to practice it without even knowing what it was, because I think that happens to a lot of people. I know that happened to me. I mean, I went from, uh, you know, getting drunk four, four nights out of the week to doing it one night out of the week. And, you know, when I was starting to talk to people about this, they said, well, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, right. what, what do you mean you're not allowed to do that? <laughs> you're well, an you, addict. You, you have to quit completely. Or yeah. I was also uh, brushing up with moderation management at the time, and they said, well, you have to be a moderate drinker. You can't get drunk one night out of the week. You have to, you know, you limit yourself to moderate limits. And it's like, well, isn't this better than where I was at? And it's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's not our rules. <laughs> right, and who makes those rules? I think that was kind of, you know, maybe my rebellious nature also helped me <laughs> align with this methodology a lot better. Well, yeah, that's good because here you can you can tell the uh, – Participant, as I'm working with Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center now, so I'm getting, you know, the the new terminology. It, it's not clients; they're not patients; they're participants because they're participating in the pro in in activities to change themselves. You know, so the participant sets their own goal of what kind of drug use they want to have ideally, and not everybody ideally wants to quit. Right, like you were talking about once, um, maybe you just don't want to drive drunk. Maybe you're never going to quit your drinking, but you just don't want to get behind the wheel. And it's like, right, right, that could actually be the difference between life and death right there. It absolutely could. Well, how does harm reduction fit in with existentialism? Um, Well, this is something I have found. um, I have a pretty effective rate with people who've been trying to quit while I've been doing this um, or even change their use during this two years I've spent doing community mental health. And I want to say, um, I'm an Oregonian, so living in Atlanta, I'm far away from home and I'm far away from everything I understood to be true, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, you know, it's a very um, different world in the South. And and there's, like I, like I say, two and a half years here, I'm just beginning to learn what I don't know. And so... I want to say, I want to lift up for a second all the amazing harm reduction that I see happens around here, which is in informal networks of people. You know, in a lot of apartment complexes, there's a candy lady, and it's a woman who sells candy to the kids, so then maybe they don't have to go across the street and maybe get hit by a car or maybe do have to deal with a police encounter that's um, a negative encounter, or you know, and she can keep an eye on folks, you know, on kids, and know that they're they're okay, or see if they're not okay. And and I think there's stuff like that here that's happening a lot. It has been happening, you know, since you know, all during the 500 years of resistance of slavery. And you know, um, there's such a a huge legacy of survival and resistance here, and and towards liberation uh, in the black community. That um, and that's when you do community mental health. Most of the participants, you know, like you say, participants. I like that because. 
um, I work with Medicaid, right? And they say you have to call them mm-hmm. consumers, which I think is really weird. So I think first I start by, you know, seeing, you know, God in me and God in you, going back to that thing every time, which is not always mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. easy to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, And then taking these stages of change and applying the existential paradoxes to each stage of change that we go through. So when you are in pre-contemplation, which says that you don't necessarily think there is a problem, maybe someone else thinks there's a problem, but to you the the drug or alcohol use is still fun, how do these paradoxes make um, play out? You know, it could be that when you have money and you can have access to something to use, well, then you have friends. You know, and maybe what gets you from pre-contemplation to contemplation is that you realize that every time you're out of drugs, you're out of friends. Mm-hmm. So that's an isolation uh, uh, isolation connection paradox right there. Or um, maybe you feel the most alive when you're using, and that's why you're in pre-contemplation, because why would you quit while using the drug makes you feel the most alive? Um, and or even give meaning to your life, like maybe um, even like the whole process of going out and getting drugs and then doing them and then being high and then the you know experience that goes with that is the thing that brings meaning to your experience. Or maybe that's the way that you make money is by you know is by selling uh, drugs or alcohol. And then there's also what's the other one? Choice and responsibility. So um, while the choices to use aren't harming you or it doesn't feel like they're harming you, why would you go from pre-contemplation into contemplation? And that next phase, of course, is when maybe you woke up in your boots too many times and you realized, okay, something needs to change. You know, maybe I've lost um, my partner because of my use. Or maybe um, I lost my job, you know. And um, maybe I woke up feeling like I remember, um, I was just talking about this with somebody recently, um, Coming down off a drug, I was maybe like 28 years old, and I was walking back home to my house, and I was just crying. I was walking down the street, and I was crying. I was like, this is not the kind of life. <laughs> you know, this feels like a meaningless existence. And that was my moment of contemplation. And um, and then, of course, um, in action, what happens? Maybe you lose your friends when you decide that you're not going to use anymore. Um, maybe you don't. Um, maybe you lost somebody that you love through an overdose. You see where I'm going, though. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in the next place, you know, so then that you move, you move on to action, and you're, and you're, you know, they say nine months in action, and I say that nine months has to cover over the holidays because, you know, if you go from January to the end of September every year or to October, and then when the holidays come, you know, you struggle. Well, then you're still kind of working through something, but, um, but then you get to the maintenance, and then there's the relapse, right? And in the relapse, you know. Actually, they say because of a reverse tolerance, if you use the same amount of drug, there's the worst chance for overdose, right? So mm-hmm. even bringing during maintenance that that life-death paradox because there's such high stakes the longer you stay sober, you know, or you're making new kinds of connections in your life as you're sober. And and, and all the while, you know, it really what it is is a, is a conversation. But you hold these paradoxes. And you see what, and you're constantly assessing where the person's at and which paradox they're working with, and then you just allow that space for the person to be their authentic self. And when they're their authentic self, they have the most access to the parts of themselves that can make the decisions that are going to work to, um, so that they can meet whatever kind of goals for change 
that um, that they decide. And you know, and I'm with you. You may never quit smoking pot, but you have to quit doing powder. You may never quit doing any of it, but you're just not gonna, you know, buy from somebody you don't know. Or, and I don't only think that it is for drug use. I think this is a beautiful um, sort of modality that can work for any kind of behavioral change that people need to make. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, harm reduction, as uh, other people have said before me, um, you know, when you drive an automobile, you put on a seatbelt, you know, that's harm reduction. If you were going to take right. an at- if you were going to take an abstinence point of view, you'd say, well, no one should ever drive an automobile because it's dangerous. <laughs> right. And, like, there's this sign here, you know, uh, as you ride down the highway on our, our main highway, and it says how many auto fatalities, you know, 66 auto fatalities in this last month. Right. So you'd say, look, this causes death. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, there's an argument that could be made there. But practically, it's not a practical thing to, to stop everyone from driving tomorrow. It's not going to work. And people aren't going to quit using drugs tomorrow, and they're never going to probably quit using drugs because it seems like they've been around. You know, like mushrooms have been around for a long time, longer than any of us have been around. Well, that gets into a whole other problem. You know, it's a, it's the a distinction between recreational drug use and problematic drug use and you know the DSM uh defines you know problematic drug use but it doesn't give any definition of recreational drug use and you know when you try and start pinning some people down some people say well only when you use a medication as directed by your doctor are you using it properly and there's you're not allowed to have any fun with drugs right right and it's, it's, okay. it's yeah it's a bizarre and, and are you and people are using um people are using prescription drugs in all sorts of ways as well you know and um and i think there's something here too when you're talking about recreational use and you know because they talk about the difference between someone who is abusing drugs and someone who is addicted to drugs right and some mm-hmm. of that is about like have you been arrested mm-hmm. but the, but whether or not you've been arrested has very much to do with do you have a discrete place to get and and use your drugs um and and that is everything to do with poverty. So if you're, because a lot of, you know, a lot of folks here um, don't have any indoor place. Like, you know, if you don't have any place to live, there's that. If you don't really have a place of your own, a room of your own, it's hard to get some. Uh, if you don't have a car, it's really hard to discreetly um, transport them. And if you're black and you do have a car, you're targeted by the police all over the place. Oh, yeah, it's huge. Um, you know, there are more white people who smoke crack than black people, even though uh, the media associates it with black people. But uh, the white the white kid in his college dorm that's smoking some crack now and then, he's not getting busted by the police. Right, right. And it's just kind of, I mean, it almost does get in that same kind of boys will be boys. You know, there's an expectation that white college kids will use drugs and experiment with drugs. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so there's that whole disparity, which is, I think, you know, makes this work very, I think, I think relevant because um, I think so many times uh, people, well, you know, like um, Gabor Mate talks about trauma, the relationship between trauma and drug use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's just so much uh, community-based trauma here that you can't even know where one begins and ends as far as, you know, what causes the need to use. 
Oh, yeah, trauma is uh, institutionalized. It's passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, somebody was just saying the other day at work at Lower East Side that, um, you know, work on transformation of the self for our, particip- for our participants leads them very often to become politically aware of the injustices, you know, outside them that, that have brought about their issues and leads them into political activism. I think that's a great point. And, and what I've found is that a lot of the people here who I believe have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, it's you know, it used to predominantly be white women, and now it is predominantly black men who get um, diagnosed around a time of, um, you know, just a, an awakening time, like 18 to 24, right? So mm-hmm. you can, like, have a lot more exposure to the world. and I mean, if you were lucky enough to be sheltered earlier. Um, and, and then you start to see, like, wow, this is wrong, and this is unjust, and I'm really mad, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so maybe you self-medicate, and or maybe your anger gets you um, led to be getting a psych evaluation that may or may not be appropriate, but then leads with this stig- stigmatized diagnosis that you then carry with you for the rest of your life. And then you're being medicated with all these really wild drugs, and I see the effect of them on people, and it's almost like being like sedated to this very extreme point. So I could see why somebody might need to counter that or want to counter that with, um, with another kind of drug. Well, some of these psych drugs, well, the antipsychotics in particular, I mean, how can these be considered, you know, safer than than recreational drugs like heroin and cocaine? You know, they they have horrible side effects. And um, heroin, you know, you have a great, you know, like you have a great night of partying with cocaine, and then that night is over. Mm-hmm. But these other drugs you have to take every day, or you get a shot every month, and it's supposed to last the entire time. And it's, um, yeah, and I think so little research has been done, and we know that because kids have tried to kill themselves. I mean, I've seen some studies that say more people have died from uh, prescribed medications than they have from street drugs. And now probably another study could disagree with that, but that that, that even has you know, come up in scientific research. Pretty appalling. Well, I'm not going to sidetrack on this forever. There is a show right. that we did last year with uh, Robert Whitaker, who wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic, which that discusses psych drugs uh, in depth. And um, he's convinced that they've caused far more harm than they've done good. You know, there there is a certain sub subset of the population that really benefits from them. But sure. uh, yeah. Yeah. they shouldn't be handed out like M&M's. Right. And I think that, like, what happens when you have, because um, most of the folks I work with who have a substance abuse diagnosis have a coexisting mental health diagnosis. And what happens is that then with, you know, getting um, on Medicaid and you get that check and the there's no incentive to not, you know, there's no no better option at that time. And people need to have a reason to make meaning of their life. You know, you have a... a People want that, right? I think it's pretty inherent that you want to have something that you can lend yourself to, that you can, you know, put your shoulder against and and, and push toward. But if you're heavily sedated and um, and then, um, you know, with this this diagnosis, it's really hard. So I think that does come back to being an existential um, an existential issue. So how do we make that kind of behavioral change to be able to even bring forth meaning? In a world where you know, once you have a, once you're called a schizophrenic, I mean, people, 
people really cringe at that. People have a lot of um, misunderstood fears about what that means, you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, it takes a lot, I think, to move people. And, and this is, um, but existential therapy has been, you know, considered an evidence-based practice for older men with schizophrenia, older adults with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, it still can be helpful, but it's not the quick cure. So that's why, you know, it's not necessarily out there in the, you know, in the common everyday language. Well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the studies they did in Finland. Well, not so much studies, but the treatment that they did. Uh, there's one place in Finland that used to have the highest rate of schizophrenia in the world. Now it has the lowest rate. And what they did was use minimal medication. They didn't cut it out, but they used it on an as-needed basis with a huge amount of psychosocial therapy and found it was very effective. Right. I mean, to me, that there goes to the isolation connection paradox. You know, it is such a lonely place to just be, you know, medicated and sent off, you know, or like hospitalized. But, yeah, that's what they say. People being together is one of the best um, success rates. So that doesn't surprise me. But I love that they don't just say, you know, and I, I don't know if it's because of profit that people oversubscribe these medications. I'm, I'm afraid that it might be. But to say, like, we're going to use it as needed, but it's not like you have to take this medication for the rest of your life. I like that so much. That's great. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, Robert Whitaker references that in his book. You'd like his book. You should get a copy. It's really good. It's called Anatomy of an Epidemic. Um, and But what they find is, um, what was I going to say? I completely lost it. Oh, well, in our society, we always look at schizophrenia and even addiction as biological diseases, um, particularly Dr. Drew was uh, I heard the other day saying there's a gene for addiction, even though all the researchers know it, there's no there's no single gene. It's a it's across many different genes. Uh, the heritability, some people say, is fifty percent. It's it's definitely not simply genetically determined, but the way that you know our society is saying you know schizophrenia is a biological disease. You're born with it. Addiction, you're born with it. Um, it's just wrong. Right, because then then what, you know, like so it's you know I liked your um I was listening to one of your other um podcasts about uh, five myths about addiction, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he was talking about you know well actually marijuana is not a gateway drug actually this gene thing is very disputable, and it's like it we can go around you know like how now they're trying to say like is there a gene for being you know like a murderer or like a mass murderer you know and it's like what does that help so now what do we do. We abort those kids or we, you know, pull out that gene. These are not real-life answers. Being with someone in their humanity, I think, is kind of the best way to get to any, <laughs> like like going back to basics. Well, what are you you're dealing with in life, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what if you say know? there's a gene, if you say it's biological, then you can say, well, just uh, Fill them up with drugs, keep them sedated so that they can't do anything, which is what they do with schizophrenics in the U.S. Actually, they prevent them from recovering because they're so doped up they can't make any change. You really um, don't, there, there isn't an incentive to change right now. Yeah, and there's no, I mean, people get to the place where they can talk, but uh, the work of the Icarus Project said after 10 years, what it looks like to have schizophrenia, you know, and a treated with meds person or an untreated person, and like those, a lot of those symptoms are going to run the arc regardless. So I think that's an interesting point as well. 
you know, what would happen if you didn't? And you could just, and then we had a lot more room for people to be who they were. And like you said, I like this finish example because, like, not to say, like, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There can be a helpful piece here, you know, but um, but to stick with the person, you know, I like that. And I think also with the medical, and I guess we're getting close here, but the like when you talk about it as a medical issue, then you you know you you treat it in this in this medicalized process, right? And then the person becomes a patient, and then that's you know that becomes sort of like where like the hospital and the mental health facility, you know, are kind of arm in arm. And then if you don't have the gene, but you're just exhibiting that kind of anger, then you go to jail. So it's like this really kind of, there's not a lot of great options, you know. So I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's a one-by-one one process working with, with people. I don't know how you do it if you, if you or a small group process. You say, I want, to be, I want to be influencing these people's lives, but maybe there might be a better, like more, like you're saying, systemic or societal approach to to moving through what I would say we're in pre-contemplation in society of whether there, that there's actually a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to mention there's not a strict time limit on the show. We can keep we can go over it's still all recording in. So, oh, cool. Okay. So, actually I set the show for an hour, but some people, you know, they run out of things to say in half an hour, so some people can talk a lot longer, so it depends. Now that's on. someone different than me, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but because this is, I, I love this topic, and of course you can't really talk just about the modality without getting into the social factors, which I'm ha- happy that you're willing to go there because, you know, I mean, working Lower East Side harm reduction, I'm sure that you've seen, you know, the effect of uh, disparity. Oh, absolutely. Even in my own life, I mean, um, I've been hugely affected by my social circumstances. Um, I was born, you know, poor. Uh, white, rural, uh, fundamentalist, Christian, creationist. Mm, my parents were teetotalers uh, because they believed you went to hell if you drank alcohol. Uh, all four grandparents believed the same thing. So, you know, I had a huge amount of social forces that were impacting me. And, you know, they were really setting me outside the the norms of society in the, you know, the majority of uh, America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where did you, um, rural where? Wisconsin. Oh, okay, so up there, up north, Midwest. Yep, yep. And it's uh, it's real isolated out there in some places like where I was born, right on the farm. Well, and, um, you know, I'm from rural Oregon, and, I mean, the mess issues in these rural white areas are really it's intense, I think, and like you said, you know, there's a lot of powder and and you know white drugs being used by the white community um, that just doesn't get get really talked about. The meth thing is like sort of getting you know beginning to get some play. Yeah, the meth is a real. It's replacing moonshine, you know, in the old moon in a lot of the old moonshining areas. Uh, making meth is a lot more profitable now. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess you can't even really buy Robitussin anymore without being like under suspicion. <laughs> yeah, um it's I think it's pretty huge um um in North Carolina cuz we uh, we had Robert Childs on here from North Carolina Harm Reduction. Oh yeah. Uh before and he was talking there's a lot of meth out there. There's a lot of prescription painkillers out there too. They used to have one of the highest overdose rates in the country. I think maybe they had the highest and but it's way down because they did this big 
overdose project called Project Lazarus and got the hospitals and doctors and everybody involved and educated. And they did a great job of lowering overdose. Wow, that's great. That's great. I mean, I think that it's it's like these, there's again the light, you know, I would say it's like where um, death and striving for life intersects with isolation and connection because you resource it with people and you're saving lives. And I think, so I think it's similar um, when you say like, how did you get into harm reduction? And I tell you like, oh, I was actually doing it before I knew what it was. I think that, you know, people who are, involved in social justice issues and people um who are doing good counseling work are actually using these principles whether or not they name them. Yeah, sometimes they just don't know what they are and uh well they don't know the whole range of them. Sometimes they they're using one little piece that they found or one other little piece that they found. It's really I think it's a it's a really important task for us to educate the rest of the world and the rest of the therapists out there this is what it is. Right, right. And I want to say, too, um, because a lot of places that serve people with a dual diagnosis are um, taking money from funding that uh, requires you to use an evidence-based practice in your work. And mm-hmm. as we know, even though motivational interviewing and harm reduction are like kind of on the rise, there hasn't been, you know, maybe all that... Um, research that needs to be done so that it can kind of get its place up there with cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what and then, you know, and then what our job is um as we do this work in the community is to document, you know, and then the pay is based on the documentation. And so um what and so existential therapy is not technique driven, it's philosophy driven. But what the what the they require is that you say, okay, what um well what did you do with this client, you know? And, mm-hmm. and as you're, you can't just say, I assessed that they are in the pre-contemplation stage and they're dealing with life and death because they're going to say that's, you know, we want to see that you told them to snap a rubber band on their wrist every time they want to use cocaine, you know. And we know that if, if snapping a rubber band was all there was to it, you know, nobody would be addicted <laughs> anymore. So, but it does help to to have in mind um a cognitive behavioral technique such as, you know, breathing exercises, other self-soothing techniques, um, you know, where, you know, building these these skills for regulation and soothing and um, and kind of like in the mindfulness frame, you know, um, encourage them to, you know, take a walk, encourage them to realize that um, below their behavior, which just appears at 10% like an iceberg, uh, below that is their their thoughts and explore their thoughts. And below that is their their feelings, and below that is the uh, you know their their beliefs about the world. I think that fits really well in this um, existential framework, but also that can be discussed as the cognitive behavioral um, intervention that then can be used in the billing. And I think that's kind of important for people who are who are trying to do this work that is you know still considered somewhat renegade, but have it fit within the um, the framework of what's acceptable in you know this system, you know, like a largely Medicaid that's saying, you know, we want to make sure that there's that you're using something that's evidence based. So I just want to put that plug in in case there's uh social workers or therapists who are listening who might uh want to try this in their practice. Well since you mentioned Medicaid, that's gonna be a huge thing um coming up um under the Affordable Care Act. I know that our director at Lower East Side has um I mean, Medicaid wants to take over harm reduction services now. 
they want to, you know, make the Medicaid bill billable. And uh, I know our director has had a huge amount of input into uh, what's going to be happening in New York City as far as harm reduction and Medicaid interact. But there's going to be some huge changes coming out of the Affordable Care Act. And I think some of that is wonderful. And I think there's some things to really be mindful about. And I would say one of the main things is that the people who really came up with this, like, you know, in, in English Avenue area where harm reduction is here in town, you know, there are there you know, there are people who are there, you know, if if somebody overdoses, you know. Um, there are people who are there taking care of each other, you know, in you know, for all these um, you know, community based, never gonna be funded harm reduction techniques that don't get recognized, right? And then mm -hmm. so then these agencies or these hospitals are going to be getting this harm reduction money, mm -hmm. but the people who came up with it will never get the recognition for it and will never get the funding to keep doing it. So it's like how do we keep that in mind and how do we somehow, like, bring to the center, you know, those sort of marginalized people who have been doing this work all along? Because, um, you know, except for, you know, here it's a little bit different because it seems like we're, um, you know, um, the Medicaid expansion is being rejected by our governor, so that's kind of difficult too. And I think a lot of the southern states are having that same problem. Mm -hmm. One thing that we see uh, here as a potential difficulty is uh, having you know these huge hospital corporations, you know, trying to swallow up you know little agencies like these little needle, needle exchanges, and then they'll say, well. Giving out needles isn't really harm reduction. We're going to send everybody to an absence-based treatment because that really reduces the harm. And they're going to just say, you know, they're going to ignore the reality and, you know, pay lip service to the term harm reduction without actually practicing it. And that's something that's, you know, that's uh, potentially very frightening. I agree with you. I agree with you. And how do we, how do we hold people accountable to that? And that's, I mean, I guess more of an organizing question than a, than a clinician question, but it's like we sort of are in a, an age where we can't do this work as clinicians unless we also bring in the the context. I mean, it's yeah, it is difficult. I mean, that's one reason why I chose to go with HAMS. We are a support group, free of charge, lay-led. We're not connected with any uh, billing. We don't do therapy for people. It's, I mean, it's great what you guys do. You know, you have these forms that are available to say, you know, this is, right, isn't this your guys' form? This is how much you drink. This is how much you wish you were drinking or none at all, and this is how you get there. And then um, also this piece that you talk about, how if you're really drinking heavily, don't just get off drinking tomorrow and just go cold turkey because you're going to get really sick. And mm -hmm. just like these kind of really practical things, I don't know. They've been they've been hugely effective and helpful in the in the groups that I do, which are also yeah not paid, and you know we just get together and talk. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, at Lower East Side, we're going to be starting uh, an alcohol harm reduction group too, in addition to our other drop-in groups. Um, it's something I'm looking forward to as soon as I can get uh, uh, some other things taken care of. Uh, my predecessor left a lot of work behind that needs to get taken care of first. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah, that's ain't that the way? Ain't that the way? <laughs> um, well, gosh, I can't um, finish up here without lifting up um, the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition and um, and the folks there who are are running it. 
um, specifically, you know, um, Verna, Harry, and Mona, who are just, um, you know, like the resource they provide in the English Avenue community is um, like, like you can see the way that people stay alive and come back, um, you know, week after week because of the, and it's love, and it makes me know that love is like really a huge component of doing any of this work because they show that love to the people who come and um and it transforms lives and um so I'm just this is my plug for Atlanta uh harm reduction if anybody you know if you're ever looking for a nonprofit to donate to that would be the one in Atlanta um you know the south is a an underresourced um place that's doing so much with so little Atlanta harm reduction is the only needle exchange in the entire state and um and I just I just love it it has really you know just reframed my entire thinking about the world yeah, Mona Bennett was on the show uh, last year, so uh, people can go back and listen to that episode if they want to. Oh, great! Yeah, great. That's wonderful. What do you want to call it? You want to bring it to a close? Yeah, I think so. I think I've kind of talked a lot, and I appreciate so much your questions. And this conversation has been uh, really wonderful, Ken. I'd love to um, come visit you next time I'm in New York. Well, that would be great. I saw your presentation in Atlanta, as you know, and I thought it was really good, and that's why I invited you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, since then I just opened my own practice, Bird's Eye View Counseling, and um, so also uh, just to, to lift that out, birdseyeviewcounseling.com, and um, uh, kind of you know where I'm practicing that stuff kind of on a daily basis. Oh, I think I said Atlanta. I meant Portland. The conference, Harm Reduction Conference, Portland. I saw oh yeah, that was in Portland, and I'm in Atlanta. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody, come back next week. We don't have a guest scheduled yet. We'll have someone scheduled before next week, and we'll see you all then. So everyone, good night. Thank you. Good night.